0: peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray before you sit down. Holy God, thank you that you are with us. I pray that you would impress on us how valuable that is, that you are always with us. We need you, Lord. I need you. I read the fruits of the Spirit and don't see them in my own heart nearly as much as I would like. So I pray that through me and despite me, you would speak your word clearly to my brothers and sisters. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when I was in middle school at my church, fairly often, our Sunday school teachers would kind of like ask us to submit topics that we would like to learn more about. And I have a feeling they wanted us to, you know, submit things like peer pressure or the Beatitudes. You know, I'd really like to learn more about the Beatitudes. But when my friends and I turned in these topics, there were always two that were submitted the most. Without fail, whatever you may think it was, we wanted to learn about demons and ghosts. That's, that's what a middle schooler wants to know about. And I, there were many, many nights that I would spend the night with my best friend in eighth grade and we would stay up like telling ghost stories and talking about demons and getting all freaked out um, because we fear what we don't understand. And yet we're also fascinated by these things. And if you think about, uh, horror movies. Many of them deal with demons and spirits and things like that. And I have friends who like horror movies as long as it's like a monster or even Freddy or Jason, but if it has demonic things, they don't like them because it feels too close to something that can feasibly happen. We're not really worried that a guy with like blade fingers is going to show up in our dreams, but When it comes to demonic stuff, it's like, ooh, I don't know about that. And of course, in a horror movie, the worst case scenario is when there's a demon possession. Um, In the Bible, these are usually called unclean spirits. So um, it's called that more than it's called demons, but something unseen takes over someone's body. And in the movies, it causes them to do strange things that are sometimes evil and sometimes violent and uh, even sometimes supernatural, like levitating off of a bed or making something fly off the wall. We fear this because it seems to us so powerful and so out of our control. And this morning, we're gonna talk about a possession that is powerful and supernatural. And if this spirit gets into you, it'll wreck your life. And it'll make you do things that no one knew was possible. And, uh, as I was writing all this, I realized this might be the weirdest sermon I've preached. If not the weirdest sermon that you've heard, cause we're already talking about demons and horror movies and we still have sorcery and orgies to go. So <laughs> it's, it's going to be a wild Sunday. Um, but those are not the best parts there. There are better parts than that to come. So let's jump in. Paul says a lot to us here, but there are only two times that he directly tells us to do something, and it's really two different ways of saying the same thing, and this is in verse 16 and verse 25. Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, and then he tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. So they're both sort of walking imagery. So the question that we need to ask this morning, really not just this morning, but all of our lives is what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. And the Greek word that Paul uses for walk is peripateo. And you don't have to remember that. It's it's neither here nor there. But peripateo is the regular old run-of-the-mill word that just literally means walk. It's not like, ooh, it has this obscure mystical meaning. Um, in Matthew 418 it says Jesus was walking by the sea peripateo. Um, everywhere else in the New Testament, when this word is used, it just means walk. But Paul tends to use it metaphorically. For example, you may be familiar with 2 Corinthians 5-7 that says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Or you've probably heard Ephesians two ten that says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul is using this metaphorically. It clearly means something more than just strolling down the road. But before we can really answer the question, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, we have to ask a different question. Who is the Spirit? And if you don't know the context of this passage here in Galatians, it's helpful to know that Paul is writing to people who are already Christians. So he doesn't explain which spirit he's talking about because for his audience, it was understood. But I want to make sure if you're not familiar with it, that you understand who he's talking about. The spirit here is not a what. The spirit is a who. And the spirit is not an it, the spirit is a he, the spirit is personal. He's not an unclean spirit like the ones that Jesus cast out, he is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God himself. So if we know that the spirit that Paul is talking about is the spirit of God and we're supposed to walk by the spirit, how do we even get in contact with him? How would you uh, get in contact with the Spirit in general? In the movies, maybe we'd need to conjure the Spirit. Maybe we'd need to make some sort of sacrifice. Maybe we'd need to communicate through a medium or through a Ouija board or something like that. So how can we be in contact with the Spirit of God? And this is the astounding thing, that if you grew up in the church, you've grown numb to this. But I want you to consider this. The spirit of God is freely given to anyone, to anyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ. Acts 2:38 this is one of Jesus' disciples, Peter talking. He says, "Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. And if you don't understand what that means, it's okay. If this sounds like churchy Bible language, it's okay. To repent simply means to turn, to look at your life and realize you can't do it on your own strength. To believe is to look at Jesus and realize he's done everything I can't do. And for some reason, he offers that to me. To be baptized is the outward expression of the reality that when you believe in Jesus, you have become part of the family of God and all your sins are forgiven. This is the good news. Gospel means good news. That is the crux of the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus, I really want you to. It's the most important thing to me. And even for my brothers and sisters, Here in the family of God, I want to remind you that this morning we desperately need to repent and believe in Jesus again and again and again. We're looking at what it means to walk by the Spirit, and I think this continual repentance and belief in Jesus has something to do with it. So what does it mean? If you're a Christian, then you're a follower of Jesus, And what do you think it means to be a follower? Um, It's not like following college basketball where you Google some stats and check on your bracket. It means something different. It means you go where Jesus goes. In the New Testament, the followers of Jesus were called disciples, and you probably know this, but they were called disciples hundreds of times. The word Christian only appears in the Bible three times. It has recently been impressed upon me. Many of us would say that we're a Christian. Far less of us would say that we're a disciple of Jesus. But the, the writers of the New Testament make no distinction. A disciple was someone who followed a rabbi or a teacher. And when I say followed, they literally followed the rabbi it's said that they followed in the dust of the rabbi. So they followed him so closely that when he kicked up dust, before it could settle on the ground, it settled on those disciples. They followed him, they ate, they slept, and even used the bathroom when and where the rabbi did. And in the first century, unless you were wealthy, you walked everywhere. And I want you to think about how many times in the Gospels you see Jesus and his disciples walking. He traveled a lot. He traveled all up and down Israel, and with a few exceptions, boats and a donkey, he was always walking. How do we know that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve? Because he taught his disciples that while they were walking. And how did Jesus meet and heal a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years? Because he met her while they were walking. And how do we know this story? Because the disciples bore witness to this while they were walking with Jesus. One of Jesus' most well-known miracles was walking on water. And what did Peter, one of his disciples, do when he saw his rabbi walking on water he got out of the boat and he started walking on water too. Because where the rabbi goes, you go. When we say we follow something, we rarely mean that it's a life commitment. It, it's more like a button on our phone. I follow this gamer. I follow this blogger. I follow this musician. But it meant something quite different when Jesus said, come, follow me. The reality if you're a follower of Christ, is the Spirit of God is within you. He actually goes where you go all the time. When you sleep, He doesn't. But we prove every day that we are quite capable of living like the Spirit isn't with us at all. In verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This means we can be a Christian. We can be alive by the Spirit. We can possess the Holy Spirit of the one true God, but not keep in step with the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit doesn't mean you check in with the Spirit once a week at church or before you fall asleep at night, it means you follow him closely, even to the extent that you go places and say things and do things that may seem odd to those who are out of step with the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna get to some of those things. But first, let's read on. Read verses 16 through 18 with me. Paul says that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul here is contrasting walking by the spirit with the desires of the flesh. And up to this point in Galatians, even if you haven't studied Galatians, if you've just casually paid attention to the sermons that um, Tyler's been going through, you've probably noticed that um, Paul contrasts uh, the law a lot with the gospel. Paul's been telling us not to rely on works of the law for justification, for life with the family of God, for salvation. But he kind of turns a corner in chapter five, and rather than justification before God, Paul is showing us something else that the law is powerless to do. The law is powerless to overcome the desires of our flesh. The law can't do anything about your heart and your desires. The way to overcome the desires of your flesh is to be led by the spirit. Galatians chapter five begins by talking about the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us. It talks about how he freed us from the slavery of the law but he also freed us from slavery to sin. He freed us from our unhealthy desires that ultimately do us and others harm. By contrasting the spirit and the desires of the flesh, I want to make this clear. Paul is not insinuating that our flesh, that our physical bodies are somehow evil. I want to make that clear. Our flesh is not evil. Our flesh embodies a part of God's good creation. In the new heavens and the new earth, and Paul himself makes this clear, we will not be disembodied spirits free of flesh. We will be whole beings with resurrection bodies that are without blemish. So it's not our flesh that's evil. It's the desires of the flesh that are evil if we walk by those desires. Verse 18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit." you are not under the law. The spirit is about freedom, but the law is really about fear of punishment. And I think I can illustrate this. If you're driving down Sandspur to get here to Orangewood and that digital sign is flashing that you're doing 32 and a 25, you're gonna hit your brake. Right? And there's probably 10% of you in the room who are better people than I am, and it's because you have a genuine concern for the health and safety of anyone on or around Sandspur, but for the other 90% of us, it's because we don't want to get a ticket, right? And I can tell you, 0% of you hit the brake because of your deep affection and love for the civic authorities in the city of Maitland, if we're under the law, we may do the right things, but we do them simply because we're obeying the laws and avoiding the punishment. The Spirit of God doesn't set us free from the law and say, run amok, go kill some people, doesn't matter anyway, YOLO. That's not what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God changes our hearts so that we actually become the kind of people who are like Jesus, All those laws show us, this is how Jesus lived. If we walk by the spirit, it means we're avoiding two extremes. We're avoiding the extreme of slavish rule keeping, but we're also avoiding the extreme of doing whatever the flesh desires. What would the extreme of doing whatever the flesh desires look like? Well, read 19 through 21 with me, and Paul gives us a glimpse. It's that long list that you almost zone out and stop paying attention to, but I want you to pay attention to it. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to quickly walk you through this list and point out a few things. First of all, this is not an exhaustive list. In verse 21, Paul says, and things like these, meaning there's more than this, but you get the picture. The list begins with sexual immorality, and the word used for this originally had referred to prostitution, but by the time Paul was writing this letter, it had long since um, begun to bear the meaning, any sexual activity outside the marriage of a man and a woman. So I want to make explicit what Paul is making explicit here. If you are walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is never going to lead you to a place where you are participating in sexual activity outside of marriage never. If anyone ever says, well, God's telling me, or I have peace of this, here's your evidence. The spirit of God is never going to lead you there. Next, he talks about impurity, which can also be translated uncleanness. In some translations, it is. And in the Old Testament, if you say buried your grandmother, you would be ceremonially unclean for a period of time. It's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about morally uncleanliness, impurity. He also talks about sensuality, which we don't always think of as a negative term, but it is in this case. And again, Paul is not speaking against our senses. We are sensual beings, and it's a good part of God's design that we can engage all five of our senses, that we can smell, that we can taste. God even uses these images in our relation to him. When we see images of the new heavens and the earth, there's still sights and smells and tastes. Those are good things. But the word translated sensuality here refers to excess and lack of moderation. It's self-indulgence with no regard for one's self or others. In other words, being led by your senses rather than being led by the spirit. This is something interesting I learned. Idolatry is a compound word that did not exist in the Greek language until the Jews came along. Because you have to remember, Greeks and Romans had no problems with idols. They had no problems with bearing down, bowing down before a statue or before an emperor, no problems with this. But then the Jews come along and they say there's one true God, and they had to create this word. And it's two words put together that simply means image worship or idol worship. Now, of course, most of us aren't bowing down to images or statues or something like that, but I don't have to tell you that we still worship idols today. The Greek word translated sorcery is pharmakeia. Again, you don't need to remember that, but Pharmakeia is where we get the word pharmacy from. Pharmakeia is most literally translated drug-induced spells. So the word generally refers to the use of drugs with two major uh, negative connotations. One is used for poisoning. The second is using drugs in the context of practicing sorcery. So there were people who would administer and use drugs for the purpose of entering a drug induced state in order to get in touch with the spiritual realm. And I'm not gonna get a lot into this, but when most of us think of sorcery, we picture witchcraft and, you know, pentagrams and stuff like that, spells. Most of us don't picture someone eating mushrooms to feel closer to God. But Paul is saying, All of those above are counterfeit paths to God, contrary to walking by the Spirit. The next eight words that Paul uses are all closely related. I'm not going to go by them one by one, but they're so synonymous that if you were to look at three or four different translations of this passage next to each other, you would see the same words showing up in different order. These are all words that are related to passion, which can be positive or negative, but these sorts of passion tear away at the fabric of relationship and community. The common thread among these words is that those who do these things stand against what is sound and they pose a threat to unity. Then we come to drunkenness, which means exactly what it sounds like, drinking excessively to the point that you're doing stupid things rather than doing the things that the Spirit would lead you to do. And lastly, orgies, the moment you've been waiting for. This is where Pastor Mark's going to talk about orgies. Uh, Several years ago, uh, when my wife was on staff at First Pres doing student ministry, on a Sunday morning, I was in the student ministry Sunday school. And it was for middle school and high school. But the reality is there were about 30 middle schoolers there and one high school kid. And he was a high school senior. And I knew him really well, because he had been in my small group for a long time. So I'm sitting next to this guy. And he is such a gentle soul, but he's a little sheltered. And on top of that, he talks just like Steve Urkel from Family Matters, if, if you know what that means. So we're going through Galatians, and we come to this passage, and they're going through verse by verse and having a you know, kid read it. And so, like, a kid, you know, probably like a sixth grader, reads this, and then everybody laughs. And this kid, whose name I won't mention, turns to me, and he's like, in front of everyone, out loud Hey, Mark, what's an orgy? Um, and that was the moment where, like any of you would have, I looked to the heavens and said, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> um, orgies are perhaps not what immediately comes to our minds in our modern context, although I'm positive what immediately comes to mind is covered when Paul said, and things like these. But in Paul's day, drunkenness and orgies were very related. The word that we translate orgy is komos. Again, you don't need to remember that. I just wanna look smart. Um, But it's an ancient Greek word that was originally the name for a festival procession in honor of Bacchus. And Bacchus was the Greek god of wine. And I'm gonna read for you a definition from an old Greek lexicon, not because I really need to, but because I thought it was hilarious. I don't know that it was an like old British dude in the 1800s who wrote that wrote this definition, but it's what I picture in my mind. So here's the definition of Komos: uh, a nocturnal and riotous procession of half drunken and frolicsome fellows who, after supper, parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity. <laughs> the phrase frolicsome fellows just got me. I, I had to do that. Okay. Um, as if talking about orgies wasn't irreverent enough. Um, but here's what I want you to hear. By Paul's day, that term komos came to be used for any overindulgence, even eating beyond the point of being full. So I want you to think about your YouTube consumption, your Netflix binges, how much chips and salsa you find yourself eating just because it's free at a Mexican restaurant. Uh, You may think you've got a clear conscience when it comes to orgies, but according to Paul's historical context, probably none of us has a stone to throw here. And in verse 21, he ends by saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Have you ever struggled with jealousy or anger or gossip? Have you ever seen the way this person's leading and thought, I could do a better job than them? In fact, I'm going to let some of my friends know I can do a better job than them. If this list of sins convicts you, then there's good news, multiple bits of good news. One comes from me just going into the Greek again. In fact, if if you're reading in your actual Bible, you might have a little asterisk there. And it says, the ESV says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word do, we don't have a lot of different ways of translating that, but it, because of the tense and things like that, it actually means something like those who go on practicing these things, making a practice of these things. I can say with full assurance that I've done many things in that list, and so have you. But we don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to go on making a practice of those things. You're not a slave to the law. You're not a slave to the desires of your flesh. Remember who you are. The Holy Spirit is not one that screams in our ears and nags us. He has a still, small voice saying, remember who you are, a follower of Jesus, a child of God. So you can walk by the Spirit. And now we get to the best part. Here's what happens when we walk by the Spirit. Read verses 22 and 23 with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law, The first list that Paul gives were things that you do, but this list of the fruits of the spirit, it's who you are, it's your character. If you're a follower of Jesus, alive by the spirit, as Paul says, then you should see these fruits in your life and you should be seeing them more and more as the years go by. You probably know someone who has known Jesus for a long time, and these fruits are more evident in them than just about anybody. But I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes, really close your eyes, and I'm going to read this list again. I want you to close your eyes and really think about what each of these words mean. And as I read them, I want you to ask yourself, would the people who know me best say that I have this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would the people who know you best say that you have these? You can open your eyes if you want to. See, it's not that hard for me to display love and joy and peace for a couple hours here on a Sunday morning. But when I come home and I'm just with Brandy and I'm just with Lucy and Jude, and things aren't going my way, and I'm tired, and I'm frustrated, and maybe I just wanna take a nap, maybe I just wanna be left alone, maybe I just want my kids to be sweet instead of whatever they are doing. It's a lot harder for me to be patient and kind and gentle And over the past year, the Lord has convicted me that my family gets the absolute worst parts of me. And yet their opinion of me really says more about my character than anyone's. If you read this list of the fruits of the Spirit and you don't see much of yourself in this list, I hope that you feel convicted by the Spirit himself. But I do not want you to be ashamed. I do not want you to beat yourself up, because there's hope. But I'm going to tell you something that's counterintuitive. Do not seek the fruits of the Spirit. If we seek the fruits of the Spirit, we'll be frustrated, because we can't fake them. You can for a couple hours, but it's not sustainable. We can't get them on our own. There's nothing I can do to produce patience and joy in my own heart. There is no self-help. The fruit, though, is not the goal. The fruit is the byproduct, and it's the byproduct of being in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel, I'm telling you today, is that each one of us can do that. Each one of us can have an intimate relationship with Jesus and bear fruit. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples that they can tell a false prophet by their fruit. Because this false prophet, they may say good things and even do good things, but the fruit tells you what sort of tree they really are. And he says, a thorn bush is not going to produce grapes. And then I want you to notice what he says in Matthew seven eighteen. This is Jesus himself preaching to his disciples. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Are you a healthy tree? The sort of fruit that Jesus is talking about the fruit of the spirit that Jesus is talking about, it has nothing to do with your accomplishments. It has nothing to do with where you volunteer, what ministry you lead, how much you're giving. In fact, I am sure that the person who bears the most fruit in the kingdom of God right now is probably not a pastor or a ministry leader. I imagine it being an elderly woman in a nursing home, who has an intimate relationship with Jesus. And regardless of her situations, regardless of the fact that someone else has to bathe her and take her to the bathroom, she has love, joy, peace, and patience because she is so close to Jesus Christ. That's who I wanna be. If you wanna be a more patient person, don't pursue patience pursue Jesus Christ and he will change your heart. He will turn you into a different sort of tree altogether. I don't stand here as someone who has it all together, but I do stand here as someone who is just starting to glimpse this sort of intimacy. And if you were to ask my wife, hey, can you tell uh, Mark's been bearing more fruit over the past year? I don't know. For me, what it looks like is, well, I didn't say that grumpy thing that popped into my head. Um, Steve Brown, who preached here several weeks ago, I've heard him say multiple times, I'm not perfect, but I'm getting better. And that's, that's what life with Christ is. It's, it's not you take this magic mushroom and you get close to God. It's you walk by the Spirit. And you find over time, things start happening, things start changing. It's almost like a good bank heist. Things are happening right under your nose and you don't realize that it's happened until it's too late to reverse anything. When I look at that kind of change and that kind of power, and then I compare that to evil spirits, it's like floating off a bed, making a cross fly off the wall. Like that's what you got that's all you got, the Holy Spirit is changing the world. And he's starting with my heart and he's starting with your heart. So I have one last question for you. And my mentor started asking me this question. And since he asked me this, I have been asking myself and others close to me this question fairly often. Is your relationship with Jesus Christ distant Casual or intimate? Is your relationship with Jesus distant, casual, or intimate? And if it trips you up and it's easier to think about your relationship with God, that's okay. Um, Jesus was God incarnate, so you don't draw close to Jesus without drawing close to God. You don't draw close to God without Jesus. But is your relationship with God distant, casual, or intimate? If you're a follower of Jesus, the greatest gift that you have is unlimited access to God. You have unlimited access to God. And Jesus said lots of things during his few short years on this earth. Some of them, are universally acclaimed, the golden rule. Everybody likes that. Some of them are offensive, but this is the last thing that Jesus said to his followers in Matthew. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, am with you always to the end of the age. He's with you because his spirit is with you. To walk by the spirit is to go where he goes. And in order to do that, we have to communicate to him constantly, communicate with him, listen to him. And if you do this, I promise it will change you. And you will find that you start naturally and effortlessly bearing good fruit. That's my hope for each of us. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, you are with us always. When we go to work, when we go to sleep, when we go to class, when we are stressed out, when we are alone, When we're angry, even when we're angry because the things you're doing don't make sense to us, you are with us always. You will never leave nor forsake us. Let the weight of that hit us this morning. Let us vow, wherever we are on the spectrum with our relationship, whether it's distant, casual, or intimate, Let us vow to take advantage of the gift of the Spirit, to walk by your Spirit, to take advantage of the gift of your availability and to move farther toward intimacy with you. And for anyone here who has never tasted that intimacy, who doesn't know Jesus as friend and brother and also as King and Lord. I pray that you would draw them to yourself. We pray all of these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.